Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by Jacob Mshangama. He is the author of A History of Free Speech. It's entitled Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. Jacob is the founder and executive director of the Danish think tank Justitia, and he is the host of a podcast himself called Clear and Present Danger, A History of Free Speech. His writing on free speech has appeared in several languages and outlets across the globe, including The Economist, The Washington Post, and Foreign Policy. He lives in Copenhagen, Denmark, and that is where he joins us from today. Jacob, so, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you, Ian. I really uh, have been looking forward to this. So this is a history that covers everything from the ancient world, starting as we always do when we cover the ancient world and ancient uh, classical Athens, and it goes all the way up through the travails of Donald Trump in the 21st century. I think our listeners are probably very familiar with a lot of the debates regarding free speech uh, on campus and in uh, social media, and although extremely important for our world today, I thought that since this is a history that ranges so far back, uh, we might dwell on some of the early years, as it were, for uh, the conceptions of free speech. Uh, You note that... um, there is a, a kind of running theme, uh, no matter what period of time it is, is um, even starting as early as 4th century BC Athens with uh, the famous orator Demosthenes, there is this concern with uh, the role that speech can play or freedom of thought can play, even absent a larger infrastructure of something like uh, individual liberty, which is very familiar to us in the modern period. So what is the, how did people in the ancient world conceive of uh, freedom of thought and what was it good for? That's a, that's a very good question. I don't think there's there's a lot of evidence that people in the ancient world prior really to the Athenian uh, democracy had a sort of concepts, uh, had, had conceptualized uh, the idea of, of uh, free speech and certainly had not sort of integrated them into a political and civic culture the way the Athenians did. So you could say, sort of to generalize, when you look at surviving law codes uh, fr- from around the ancient world, uh, regulation of speech tended to protect the ruler from the ruled rather than, you know, our modern conception where 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 the ruled are, are protected uh, from from their rulers. Um, and and then you, you could say that 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 a- Athens stands out in the sense that you had two uh, different but overlapping concepts of, of free speech. One of them was isegoria or equality of speech, which was the political con- uh, component in that all freeborn male uh, citizens uh, could participate directly in democracy in discussing and voting on the laws in, in, in the assembly. And then you had the concept of parisia, meaning something like uninhibited speech, which was more like a cultural trade, which allowed, which was based on, on sort of civic tolerance and, and, and which allowed 
um, people to discuss philosophy and politics and, uh, you know, have drama and comedy, um, have the Agora as a place where, where, where discussion was, was, was relatively open. And that uh, set the Athenians aside, especially from their, their, their Spartan rivals, as, as Demosthenes uh, put it, you know, in Athens, you could criticize the Athenian constitution and praise the, the Spartan one, but in the much more sort of oligarchic uh, and non-democratic uh, Spartan uh, constitution, you, you were not allowed to praise the Athenian uh, constitution and criticize the Spartan one. And in, in that sense, you could say there's a, there's a clear continuation between Athenian and modern versions of free speech in that the litmus test is whether you're really able to criticize the, the political system under which you live. Right. And so for the ancient world, um, there really isn't uh, a foundation conceptually um, that defends any role for the individual in the broader society. But it, there, on the other hand, there does seem to be these distinctions that you just noted in Athens. There does seem to be this concern for the health of the state or the populace overall. Yeah, and but you can, but you're right in, in pointing out that you know I guess some uh, ancient historians of of, of ancient Greece dis- disagree a little bit. But I would say the consensus is probably that they didn't have anything uh, resembling our modern conception of individual rights, and 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 that is a theme in in the famous trial of Socrates because. Uh, had Socrates been living in a modern liberal democracy, he would have been protected by an individual constitutional right to free speech. He would have been uh, tried by an independent court and not sort of a jury court made up of his uh, uh, of, of 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 any number of his his co citizens and it, and and that you know there would have been a, a rule of law, independent uh, institutions, and so on that would probably have given him a better chance uh, of, 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 of winning. So, so in that sense, the, the conception of free speech in, in ancient Greece, Greece uh, in ancient Athens is, is, is quite different from, from the modern one. So let's uh, fast forward a little bit into the Middle Ages. And one uh, aspect of your book that I greatly enjoyed was uh, introductions to people that we don't um, necessarily in the West uh, have a great deal of familiarity with. For example, in the um, Muslim world, during the height of its power in the uh, Middle Ages, in the ninth century, for example, you refer to al-Rawandi and um, several other um, scholars and thinkers who develop their own conceptions of free speech that are very remarkably um, familiar to us in the modern world today, right? Yeah, yeah uh, I, I don't know that they would. Uh, well, well, Rwandi and and um, uh, is 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 a very particular you know, free thinker, uh, medieval Muslim free thinker. Even though he, he probably towards the end was not was not was not a, a Muslim. So in the sense that he. He, he basically was sort of like a, a medieval champagne who took delight in the shock and outrage that that sort of followed in the wake of his one-man demolition show of revealed religion. Although we have to be a little bit careful because his works do not survive as such. So it's mostly sort of his, his, his enemies who sort of relay what he thought. But I don't think there's any doubt that he was, uh, at the very least, an extremely 
unorthodox uh, thinker when it came to uh, came to uh, when it came to religion. Um, um, so he was one of, uh, uh, of, of of at least sort of two radical free thinkers. The other being uh, Al Razi, who was a, sort of a Persian physician and, and philosopher and, and, and polymath. And uh, who who said that the uh, that reason was the ultimate authority, which should govern and not be governed, should control and not be controlled, should lead and not be led, and who was also very very critical um, about religious orthodoxy and religious uh, fundamentalism. And so these were sort of ninth and and, and tenth century uh, free thinkers uh, in in the Islamic world who were much more radical than than any medieval uh, thinkers contemporary medieval thinkers in in the in in christendom in 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 the west and, and probably also any later medieval thinkers in uh, in the west and of course in christendom we're familiar with the concept of heresy and the concerns for the broader structure of religion and how it defends itself as an institution and the ability to strike back against dissent uh, which of course was seen as threatening um, in the sense of the Antichrist and the role that uh, the devil might play in weakening the church. So this is something that uh, is very familiar to us uh, in terms of Western history. Eventually, um, this is one of the keys, or I should say, uh, common recurrent themes, which is that religion and the defense of it really needs to quash freedom of thought. Yeah, but but then again, you know, the medieval period in in Christendom is also sort of more complex than than sort of the trope of the Dark Ages that 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 that, that was frequently used um, suggests. So so on the one hand, you know, you do have uh, the, the, what what is sort of called the medieval Inquisition, um, which which arises and and tries to sort of streamline orthodoxy and quash heretical movements uh, around around Europe uh, alter we you know with a number of, of different punishments and shaming which could ultimately though 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 it was certainly not the standard punishment but but could result in in, in executions at the same time you also had the emergence of, of universities where for instance pagan uh, philosophy Greek philosophy and, and most consequential of all uh, Aristotelian philosophy, um, sort of uh, becomes a game changer, and 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 reason uh, is 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 unleashed. Uh, and and initially, there's a great pushback from universities and from the church. But ultimately, you know, um, these insatiable scholars at, at universities in, in Europe simply uh, cannot be stopped from from creating this culture of poking around, which will ultimately contribute to what we later call the scientific uh, revolution and, and, uh, and, and, and great philosophical development. So I think the medieval period is more complex. It, there's certainly no, again, there's no conception of free speech in, in the way that the Athenians uh, had, had it. Uh, but on the other hand, there are certainly um, there are certainly very important developments that point towards um, intellectual freedom and, and curiosity and, 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 and inquiry that, that, will, that will be institutionalized later on. I'm glad you used that phrase, poking around. I noted that. Is that a phrase uh, in translation that is in the 
original sources? Because you use that uh, in quotes. Uh, a no, of times. I, it's 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 one that I have. Uh, I I actually forget the 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 author, but uh, sort of a, a classical work on uh, on on universities uh, um, and 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 medieval uh, scholars, where uh, a scholar and I forget the name, sort of created this meme or of of uh, a culture of poking around that that becomes extremely consequential for for what you might call Europe's collective brain uh, you know sort of connecting the the neural circuitry in, in Europe's collective brain that 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 really sets Europe on a on a path of of these later incredible uh, scientific and intellectual achievements you also mentioned the role a moment ago of universities and i was struck by what appears to be a kind of a competition for scholars among universities you had noted that there were some that had feared the effects of reading for example, Aristotle, and it was effectively uh, forbidden or banned at uh, some universities, but then others were um, trying to lure scholars away, as universities are wont to do even today, uh, by promising them the freedom to engage in inquiry with Aristotle. Yes, uh, indeed. So at, at the University of Paris, uh, on a number of occasions, there were these bans, uh, what we today might call speech codes, um, trying to sort of ban Aristotelian uh, philosophy. Um, and then, you know, you had, uh, for instance, the University of Toulouse, which which sort of said, well, hey, Parisian scholars, uh, you're, if you're banned from 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 studying uh, Aristotle, why not come uh, down to Toulouse and and you know you can uh, you you can you can read all the Aristotle you want and uh, and and Henry the Third did the same you know inviting uh, scholars to Oxford and, and and Cambridge. So in that sense, you could say that that academic freedom, or in in its earliest versions, became a an incentive and a competitive advantage in uh, in, in Christendom, uh, and and then which also forced the church and to to sort of relax its grip uh, on, uh, on on pagan uh, philosophy and sort of see you know there's no way we can we we can sort of um, restrict uh, these scholars from 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 these game changing uh, ideas. And that's another aspect of the universities is this theme that it seems to me that I drew out of the book, which is that freedom of thought tends to flourish when there's a decentralization of authority. Is that right? That I, I think that's a um, I think very much that's a sort of a, a meta narrative of the book in the sense that. Um, you know, in the Athenian democracy, you didn't have, you know, you didn't have any inquisition, you didn't have any sort of central authority that policed um, speech. The same way, one of the reasons why the Abbasid Caliphate and, and adjacent th- territories in the, in, the, in the Islamic world from sort of the 8th to the 10th centuries uh, was, was less beholden to religious orthodoxy was because the caliphs had sort of only loose uh, centralized uh, authority. And as you rightly mentioned, you know, you can see that with the universities and you see it later on with the Dutch Republic, which in early modern Europe becomes sort of the printing uh, the printing press of Europe and, and where um, even though there's no constitutional legal protection of freedom of speech and, and thought becomes uh, much more tolerant 
both when it comes to religion and when it comes to to what can be printed and read. Even though you know it's 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 certainly not uh, free speech absolutism, and 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 there are restrictions, but it's 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 much more permissive environment than than many other places in Europe. Due to you have these provinces, the United Provinces, with very loose central uh, authority, and and again you could point to the to the American colonies in the 18th century, where uh, you also have loosened centralized uh, uh, authority, and and that helps uh, along. And of course, you know, all the way up to our digital age, where the early stages of the internet, you had a very decentralized uh, internet, very horizontal internet, uh, without these huge centralized platform that, platforms that we have today, which also encourage much more uh, f- online free speech. And so uh, you in in the book you mentioned the role of technology certainly the printing press is uh, probably uh, even more important I would imagine and uh, in many ways uh, more proportionately extensive in its effect than even the internet uh, today because it seems that it really revolutionizes the ability of people to communicate uh, to large numbers of people that they simply could not reach uh, prior to this technological development. Yeah, you know, uh, whether it will prove to be more consequential than the internet, you know, who knows? Uh, or maybe that, that that history, that, that, that is yet to be seen. Perhaps uh, we'll, we'll, in, in 200 years from now, people will say, well, the internet was... Uh, created, you know, something that we can't I- imagine. But, but uh, you know, f- from looking at my position in 2022, I would argue that the printing press is, is more consequential uh, than the uh, than than the internet. So, in uh, 1462, there were four printing presses, um, and uh, that had uh, grown to 1700 by 15 uh, by, by by the year 1500. Um, and um, and 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 so an explosion of of, of books and, and and other printing uh, materials. Um, so so production increased to around, for instance, eighteen million books from from fifteen oh one to fifteen fifty, and then to one hundred thirty eight million from fifteen fifty one to sixteen hundred. So so those are staggering uh, staggering numbers, and at the same time, prices of books uh, dropped exponentially. Um, and and uh, and then you had the the printing press mixed with the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther's uh, Reformation, and and Martin Luther, who in order to to challenge the authority of the church and spread the truth as he saw it, uh, actively encouraged ordinary people to 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 be taught to read and write, uh, translated the New Testament into German, and himself wrote. Uh, Treatise after treatise um, that was that was spread and went viral through through the uh, the printing press and 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 sort of revolutionized what we might call religious populism. Sort of writing in short, punchy German rather than dry theological uh, t- treatises in Latin. Uh, and and um, but the, I, and I think the unintended consequences of that was that it provided uh, ordinary Europeans access. To read and write themselves, so they could suddenly they had access to the Bible, and then they got their own ideas about what the Bible said. They didn't necessarily follow the ideas of Martin Luther, and that created a lot of religious 
competition of religious uh, heterodoxy. And, and although the initial consequences for a long time were sort of a lot of upheaval and, and violence and wars and so on, that ultimately led to, to Europeans being more accustomed to, to differences and, and sort of being uh, skeptical of, uh, of, of orthodoxy. Um, so, so, so I think the, the printing press and the Reformation are absolutely crucial to, to later developments, but in, in, in large sense due to unintended consequences because Martin Luther himself was certainly no proponent of universal toleration or free speech. In fact, he argued for the, the, the death penalty of, of blasphemers. Well, that's another point you make uh, in regard to Martin Luther, but also perhaps um, some of the traditional uh, early thinkers that we often hold up as exemplars of uh, pathfinders in free speech. Uh, lore are not necessarily the ideals that we would uh, like them to be in terms of heroes. So, for example, John Milton, who at one point in the 1640s is um, publishing something uh, outside of Britain's Licensing Act, uh, at the same time will later himself join the censors and um, uh, in engage in his own um, enforcement of censoring uh, authors or at least licensing their thought. So there's a complexity there to in, in regard to the justifications for spe free speech and the justification for restricting it that are not entirely in line even in the early modern period with our conceptions for the reasons for free speech. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I, in fact, I term I I I I term it the or dub it the, the Milton's curse, sort of the the unprincipled uh, and selective defense of free speech. Uh, though to John Milton's defense, it's it's something that we very still see to to this day. You know, in in it'll be very familiar to to. To, to those who are observers of, of American culture wars over free speech that, that you know, um, liberals and conservatives will complain about um, restrictions on free speech on the other side, but then be completely comfortable with, with their own restrictions on free speech, which they will uh, insist somehow actually do not violate free speech. But, but John Milton in 1644 um, pens uh, the Areopagitica, which is, as you said, is, is a plea for press freedom, uh, for, for, for unlicensed uh, press freedom, and he, you know, writes beautiful language, uh, sort of saying, give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. But uh, at the same time, you know, Milton then says that uh, with press freedom, he means not tolerated popery and open superstition, uh, and uh, a bit because that would extirpate all religion and, and and civil supremacies, and therefore should be should be banned. And he didn't want to provide shelter to ideas that were impious or evil or against faith or manners, uh, and that books should um, such books uh, should should actually be burned by by the hangman. And as you rightly mentioned, he ends ends up serving as a censor under Cromwell. And his sort of quasi-military dictatorship. So, so I would argue that 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 Milton's contemporaries, the Levellers, who who sort of argue for for a much more radical conception of free speech at the time, are more worthy 
sort of champions of, of free speech, although they have largely been for, forgotten. But when you look at what people like um, John Lilbo and William Walwyn and, and Richard Overton write, they they resemble a lot of the 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 arguments that that someone like James Madison would 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 later advance in in favor of of, of free speech and go much further than than John Milton's uh, idea of free speech. So one very modern uh, term that you use that also uh, applies to earlier periods before it historically occurred is what you refer to as the Weimar fallacy. Uh, Explain what that is and how it can help us understand both the ancient world and today. Yeah, so the Weimar fallacy is this... um... Uh, well, in 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 Europe, um, it's um, all European democracies have restrictions on free speech. Uh, for instance, when it comes to hate speech, and uh, and many also sort of towards totalitarian ideologies, uh, it could be ban against Holocaust denial in in uh, in Germany or not Nazi symbols uh, and so on, but. Um, uh, and and that is based on the idea of never again, uh, of course, never again a totalitarian um, regime like the Nazis, never again a uh, Holocaust, um, and which of course is a very very worthy uh, ambition. And if it could be shown that that free speech had been furthering, uh, had been instrumental for that, and and that lack of censorship. Had 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 been instrumental in uh, in in that cataclysm. Then uh, I think most free speech champions would be in favor of restrictions on free speech. But in the book, I show that in the Weimar Republic, even though it was quite liberal compared to what went before it in Germany, there were actually quite draconian restrictions on free speech that grew ever more intense as the Weimar Republic hurled towards its own destruction. So, for instance, there were. The, the the radio was was heavily censored. Communists and Nazis could not uh, get on air. Um, there were these uh, emergency laws which allowed German states to ban newspapers for for several weeks, sort of administratively, if they spread false news or attack government institutions or government uh, officials. And actually, the Nazis were often affected by those, even though even though the courts and institutions were more hostile to left wing. Uh, organizations and right-wing organizations. Um, someone like Goebbels, who would later become propaganda minister, co- uh, bragged about how his newspaper, the Angriff, was the most frequently banned newspaper in 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 Germany. So he used it to, to paint himself as a martyr. You know, um, Julius Streicher, who was the the editor of the anti-Semitic Nazi rag Das Stürmer. Uh, was sentenced for religious offense due to these anti-Semitic blood libels, uh, was sentenced two months in prison, again used it as a propaganda vehicle, and damningly uh, in Nuremberg, where he, where, where Stryker was convicted, le- less than a year later, the Nazis increased their share of, of votes there, which, which suggested that perhaps these uh, methods were not effect- effective. And most damningly of all, I think, is the fact that once the Nazis were in power, they used the emergency provisions in the Weimar Constitution, in the democratic Weimar Constitutions that were supposed to protect democracy. They used those provisions to abolish democracy. So when the the Reichstag, the German federal parliament, was burned down by uh, by what we think was was a communist, some speculate that the Nazis were responsible, um, 
then uh, Hitler convinced the, the, the German president to use that provision, Article 48 in the Constitution, to suspend civil liberties, including freedom of speech and association. And that paved the way for the Nazis to ban communists and, and, uh, and, and social democrats and socialists, put them in concentration camps, shut down their newspapers. Uh, and then within six months, uh, they had created a, a totalitarian one-party state. Um, and so my argument is not that that the censorship um, and lack of free speech uh, can explain the, the rise of, of Nazism, but I, I, I argue that those who, who want to introduce restrictions on free speech and democracy sh- should have the burden of proof that such policies are actually effective and, and likely to serve that purpose. And I don't think the Weimar uh, the Weimar period supports the argument that that free speech is uh, restricting free speech is uh, an efficient and necessary instrument to to limit totalitarian and, and hateful movements. Well, it seems to me also that you you're making a larger point, which is the Weimar example historically may be one example of how efforts on the part of public authorities to quash speech, the very thing that they fear, ultimately. Uh, has this unintended consequence of multiplying the very speech that they fear because of the uh, the proponents of whatever the ideas are. They go underground. Uh, they redouble their efforts. They ultimately may not succeed quite in the way that they had anticipated, but nevertheless, they still succeed in propagating whatever speech the authorities want to quash. Yeah, and, and that's exactly you know what we saw with someone like Julius Steiker and 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 Goebbels in that they 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 got uh, extra. Uh, attention. It's also something uh, that you uh, will see today uh, very often in, in the digital age. Someone being purged uh, of social media platforms can often lead to extra attention uh, to, to, to that person. Uh, and, but it's something that you see all the way back to, to ancient times. So the, the Roman historian Tacitus has to, describes this case under the emperor Tiberius, who became sort of more and more authoritarian. And he, uh, Tiberius, uh, under his administration, this historian, this Roman historian, uh, is being convicted for for treason um, because he has written a history uh, which which pains um, those who engaged in in the coup against uh, against Julius Caesar as a sort of true Roman. So it's sort of a, a veiled a veiled praise of, of Roman republicanism. Um, and then Tacitus uh, has this uh, formulation where he writes something along the lines that you know only fools think that that by banning uh, such works they will uh, be forgotten. Instead, uh, they will be remembered by posterity, and their fame will, will only grow. So he 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 describes what we might today call the Streisand effect, uh, which 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 has very ancient roots indeed. So there may be a lot of lessons in history for both the proponents and the opponents of freedom of thought and expression. In regard to today's world in 2022, when this interview is taking place, what do you think history can do for us in terms of understanding the prospects for the flourishing of thought and freedom of expression? I think that, um, you know, I think in ma- many of the debates that we have today are really recurrent 
uh, themes. So one of them I describe is is that of an elitist versus an egalitarian conception of free speech, with the egalitarian one having its roots in the Athenian democracy and the elitist one in in the Roman Republic. And and I think we see that today in 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 the age of social media. Sort of, do we do should we have a public sphere where everyone? Uh, has the uh, uh, ability to speak uh, directly, even the uneducated uh, and uh, and the credulous and 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 so on, or should we have a more top-down regulated sphere where you have institutional gatekeepers that can filter uh, information uh, down to the masses with with minimum participation of uh, of the masses, and we've seen that. Um, play out again and again every time there's a new technological uh, development or political developments that have expanded speech rights to uh, to new groups, whether racial minorities or women or the poor and the property less. And you know, very often when we look back uh, in time, we 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 tend to think of the, those who were the sort of proponents of the elitist conceptions as being reactionary and uh, uh, and and and, and um, defending uh, deeply unjust versions of, of free speech but whenever but but uh, and so I think those who, who sort of favor more regulation of of, of uh, free speech today should think about whether they might not end up being viewed in the same way uh, 50 or 100 years uh, fr- from now. Another important lesson, I think, is, you know, there's a tendency uh, in, in, in many democracies of viewing free speech as um, entrenching unequal power relations and being a threat to minorities. Uh, but I argue in the book that, in fact, the values of free speech and equality are mutually reinforcing rather than mutually exclusive, and that every single oppressed group and minority has relied on the practice and principle of free speech to better their lot, to argue for for justice, racial justice, or equality of, of the sexes, uh, and so on, and that, in fact, free speech might be the most powerful engine of human equality that that we've ever stumbled upon uh, as a species. Uh, so, so that is something that I would hope uh, we uh, we become increasingly aware of, and that in fact, adopting restrictions on free speech might very well end up hurting those minorities and oppressed groups that they were supposed to protect. Well put. Well, the book is entitled "Free Speech: A History from Socrates to Social Media," and we've been joined today by its author, Jacob M. Shangama. Jacob, so much. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Ian. It was a pleasure.